welcome to our Twitter space for the script where we're going to be going through insights from last quarter's earnings calls. And it feels like the world has changed quite a bit in the last 24 hours. So I'm sure we'll start to think about what the world looks like going forward a little bit here too. But you've got me, I'm Scott Krisloff. I'm editor of the transcript along with Eric Mokaya, who is a lead author of the transcript and co-host, co-founder. And we've got Sam Rowe on here as well, who's been a big supporter and we're happy to have on the line as well. So how's it going, Sam? Great. Thanks for uh, having me on. Cool. Let's start with the way that the transcript is structured each week. We have the sections that are the same thing each week, and we start with the macro section. So let's start with the macro and the rundown there. I think the biggest change that happened in the first quarter is that we have the big Omicron wave that we all went through. And then on the other side of that, it feels like the era of COVID having a psychological impact on all of our lives is basically over. And I feel like that kind of got cemented today with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. I feel like that in and of itself is just an indicator that we're ready to turn the page on COVID being a dominant factor in our lives. Hopefully that's the case that no new, new variants pop up that make us go back. But that's the way it feels to me right now. Eric, Sam, any thoughts? Eric, why don't you go ahead? I think the main takeaway from the macro section is also the same, especially the past four weeks, uh, suddenly geopolitics has also started being like a key factor that a lot of companies are mentioning their earnings calls. I haven't seen that in a while, where there's a unanimous kind of uh, discussion around companies concerned about uh, events in Ukraine, around the world generally. So a lot of companies were mentioning that. So I'd agree that this is kind of the quarter you could tell a lot of companies have shifted from maybe using COVID as a reason for anything and then more discussing now issues to do with geopolitics and all. Sam, did you see anything similar? Yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing. And I might add a little bit of nuance to that. I think one of my favorite quotes from this earnings season came from Boston Properties, the commercial real estate manager. They were talking about how even amid the Omicron wave, and yes, there's so many disruptions tied to COVID variants and stuff like this, that a lot of leisure activities and entertainment types of activities were at full capacity. Concerts, amusement parks, restaurants, to the degree that um, these businesses could serve their, their customers. But they did say, and I think a lot of us and a lot of the listeners can sort of appreciate this. They did say that one area where there continues to be sort of weakness in terms of activity is office spaces. While companies are certainly open and having workers come back, activity around offices continues to be kind of low. And so I wonder to what degree COVID and variants is affecting behavior because of people's concerns out of getting infected, which certainly exists. But to what degree there are these other things going on, like, for instance, the way people think about work and, and, and lifestyle and stuff that are making them more reserved about going back to the office, U using COVID as an excuse to not go back to the office as opposed to actually being concerned about COVID. So, yeah, I, I think it's some really interesting stuff came out in terms of how companies performed in light of, of what was expected to be very disruptive. Yeah, that was super interesting, Sam. We picked up the same thing in terms of people not going into the office, but still living their lives, going to restaurants, traveling and stuff like that. For me, even the first quarter, business travel fell off a lot, but it's starting to pick back up for me now. And I feel like I'm seeing more 
people going back into offices more regularly. And in LA, mass mandates are coming off completely, even at schools. So I think the world's getting back to normal. Yeah, I think definitely on that end. Another theme that we checked out in the earnings call was about inflation, of course. I know, Scott, you have a lot of historical perspective on this since you've handled this a lot. And the issues maybe to do with companies' expectations around uh, raising rates going into this new year. I mean, raising rates from the perspective of the Fed. So I, I think this is also the quarter where you see a lot of companies who mentioned inflation being a major concern. But again, from what you could gather is that the consumers so far have been able like, to take the price increase as well. Maybe going forward, then there could be maybe a little worry around if the consumer can actually keep taking these more price increases as maybe costs and labor become a, a bigger issue. Did either of you see something like that? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in. It's interesting. So I think there's sort of two things to hit on there. First, the matter of inflation and, and cost increases and, and all of this stuff. And I, I think you mentioned this too briefly, but one of the things that a lot of these companies, if, if not all these companies that are sort of facing these challenges with cost inflation, whether it's rising raw material costs or higher labor costs, have all almost universally talked about how they are at least passing some of this cost pressure off onto their customers. And they're very specifically point noting that there's very little resistance to accepting those price increases. Some of the the commentary that's been coming out. And I think this is something that's sort of changed in this recent quarter, as opposed to earlier quarters where maybe consumers and businesses were sort of surprised by these price increases and maybe there was some more resistance. Now, a lot of the conversation seems to be, well, the customer now knows inflation is everywhere. And so when we raise prices, they know that this is not us like trying to screw them, but that this is just a part of every other business and everyone trying to deal with inflation as a problem. It's almost like the customer, whether it's a consumer or a business, is now understanding that, at least in 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 the short run, that inflation and price increases is just part of the deal. And so they're moving on with it. And on the other side of it, this is also an acknowledgement of the fact that consumers and businesses, from a financial perspective, are pretty healthy. Their capacity to service debt and, you know, cash levels are extraordinarily high. And so we have this interesting dynamic of limited goods that's leading to higher prices, but customers are paying because they have the financial capacity to pay for it. So yeah, some interesting dynamics there. Yeah. Adding to this again, consumers have so much money they're flush with from stimulus spending and generally healthy economy, strong stock market, all of that historical perspective, it has in many ways felt analogous to me to the period post-World War II. That was the last great deflationary period that we experienced as a country. It was the 1930s. And then you had this big international calamity event in World War II, where the U.S. government took on a massive amount of debt, put money straight into consumers' pockets through really hiring back then. But people came out of World War II. There was a scarcity of production and the supply chain. We were making cars or tanks and planes instead of automobiles. So people came back and just started spending in a really, really large amount on consumer goods. And you saw a large amount of inflation throughout the economy during that time. And originally the U.S. government tried to fight that with price controls. That's what they had done during World War II. And then kind of like in late 1947, 
the Fed decided, hey, wait, maybe monetary policy has something to do with this and we should be using monetary tools to address the inflation. And so they finally started to do that in 48. And then in 49, you had kept the inflation more in check and you got a huge bull market from 49 through the 1950s, really through the 1960s. So similar to that, with the exception that in this time around, financial market asset prices are extremely elevated. We're not exactly at low multiples facing this inflation. Uh, a quick one, though, on labor markets, because one of the quotes you picked up was from Akres from CEO saying that we have labor problems everywhere. We can't find people. Our labor costs are going up significantly well beyond minimum wage for certain functions that used to be minimum wage. So I think this is picking up in the trend that has happened in the pandemic where people are going away from jobs that they didn't like now into jobs uh, that they would really want or just staying off the job market because they have some money in their account. Anecdotally, or at least on the ground, what have you seen as regards labor market issues? I think from what you pick up in the earnings calls is that companies are really stressed in terms of getting labor to meet the demand that is out there. Sam? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the more interesting things that is sort of flying under the radar in terms of macro right now. And it's sort of like an extension of supply chain issues too. But because of these shortages and this inability to meet the actual demand that customers are bringing, there are so many companies that keep telling you that business could have been better if we had more people on the assembly line or we had more servers or if we had more line cooks or whatever. There was like 30% year over year earnings growth in, in Q4 and, and I'm sure people expect that to accelerate a little bit, but it still seems to be the case that pent-up demand is still not being fully addressed. And this has to do with the fact that, Scott, you mentioned this too, that there are shortages just all over the place. So the, the effect of labor shortages being that there aren't enough goods being made or there aren't enough tickets to sell at Disney World or, or what it might be. And I, I think that sort of speaks to what could be a longer-term sort of bullish potential that's still sort of built up in that the consumer and, and the businesses doing the, these purchases, they, they're still not able to fully spend as much as they, they would like because of these shortages. So I think there's a lot of sort of fuel for demand in, in the coming quarters because of, of these actual shortages. But whether something like labor shortages actually gets addressed is a really interesting one because if you look at stuff like the Jolt survey or data from like the Indeed hiring lab, the U.S. economy, at least, has had 10 million unfilled open jobs for months. And this is happening as companies are increasingly increasing wages, but these jobs are, are continuing to go unfilled. So there is this lingering question of are companies actually able to increase the capacity to the degree that they would like so that they can address all of this demand? Those are unanswered questions, but I think at the very least, it seems the pattern seems to be the case that there continues to be pent up demand. Maybe I'd jump in and ask some, I know you've written a little bit about this, but then like, what are some of the reasons where there is a lot of jobs that are remaining unfilled? Well, I think the first and foremost one is it seems that people actually have a lot of financial sort of flexibility, right? And this is obviously not uniform across the board, but folks who are homeowners or folks who you know have had money in the stock market people who were on the receiving end of stimulus payments and stuff 
have had kind of a buffer when it comes to their financial situation. So maybe it's the case that people are still sort of not ready to um, go back to work for whatever reason. We still know that childcare continues to be a huge issue. It, it's not hard to find someone, whether it's someone in your own family or your own family or friends or whoever, but everyone is struggling to understand how to address childcare issues, especially with school systems having to deal with all these kinds of problems. I think as mask mandates and stuff like that evolve, we could probably see uh, more people go back to work because childcare issues sort of naturally get addressed. But yeah, I, I think those are sort of the two biggest things is that people do sort of have, you know, some financial flexibility. I mean, there was another survey uh, a couple of months ago, or I think this gets updated by the Indeed Hiring Lab. There's also a, a big ch chunk of this population of people who used to work, who aren't working now, maybe living off of the other spouse's income. So suddenly there are two income households that become one income households. And while that might be more of a stretch from a lifestyle perspective, it might work out better for them as people sort of reevaluate how they live their lives in this sort of post COVID era. I, I think those are the big factors, incomes that are up, savings that are savings levels that are up, and then two childcare issues that, that continue to linger. Perhaps now to wrap up on the macro section, Scott, any thoughts that you'd want maybe to give on that section? Yeah, I was thinking about asking both of you guys, is there anything contrarian that we picked up in any of the quotes in the macro section? And I was trying to think about what my own answer would be. I think there were some quotes talking about supply chains getting better. But it wasn't a resounding thing. I think the one that stuck out to me most was a, a quote from Walmart, I think, that talked about supply chains getting slightly better for them. And especially unload times at ports were getting better. That was a big source of supply chain disruption during the pandemic. So if that's getting better, that's something that could, on a contrarian basis, surprising to markets. So that's something to keep an eye on. Either of you guys have something to add to that? Yeah, that, that's something that's starting to come up in ISM and, and purchasing manager surveys where supplier delivery times are starting to improve. It's still taking forever for people to get their goods from manufacturers and stuff, but there are signs that's sort of improving broadly ac across, you know, multiple industries. But yeah, no, anecdotally, there's no shortage of companies that are complaining that supply chain problems continue to be a huge problem. But one thing that's kind of interesting, and I wonder how this sort of affects profit margins and efficiencies structurally going um, further down the road, is all this talk about like bringing processes in-house rather than outsourcing certain aspects of the supply chain, you know, actually building that out. And then related to that, Companies that are increasingly onshoring or reshoring, whatever you want to call it, manufacturing capacity, as opposed to being too reliant on vendors that have to ship products and stuff through ships and, and go through customs or whatever it is. Companies that are actually building plants in their home country. So I wonder to what degree that might help loosen the, the supply chain issues for certain companies, but what does that mean for costs and competitiveness down the road? Maybe I can, I can jump in a little and because I think last week, I think it was last week's earnings, the newsletter they sent out uh, and we noted this issue of trying to deal with supply chain issues by 
retaining some of the manufacturing inside the country. And I think one key area this has revealed itself is Intel, where we looked at it more as a geopolitical play because everyone wants to make sure that they're manufacturing some of these semiconductors within their country. And their target, I think, is to move from 10% currently semiconductors being produced in the U.S. to around 20 to 25% in the next decade. It's shifted from where it was before, where the U.S. was the one which was manufacturing, and then they outsourced it to Taiwan. And now they want to at least to bring some of that manufacturing back. So I think one of the companies to watch out for in that regard, in terms of supply chains and also in terms of sourcing of components is Intel, definitely. And we talked about it a lot, Scott, this week, right? Yeah, we did talk about that a lot. I think it could potentially become an even bigger theme going forward, especially if geopolitical stuff continues to, to heat up with Russia and Ukraine. And I think what most of us are probably really worried about is China and Taiwan, especially from a semiconductor standpoint. And if we put the same sort of sanctions on a Chinese invasion that we did on a Russian invasion, like the supply chain challenges that we've already been experiencing and are maybe starting to heal, probably get much worse again and all of the inflationary impact and stuff like that. So I think that's something that is like outstanding question and things that we're watching into Q2 and going forward. Just on that point, Scott, I think it's interesting how we're talking about sort of geopolitics right now and sanctions and and how that stuff impacts the economies who have something at stake here. A lot of the talk that we hear from Biden and other policymakers when they're talking about sanctions against uh, Russia, hand in hand, we'll talk about how they're trying to do this in a way that has limited or minimal economic impact on their own countries and their own economies. And so maybe it's the case that, I mean, listen, I'm not by no means am I a geopolitical expert, but this is something that I'm going to pay attention to should things escalate in other parts of the world. I want to word this very carefully because I don't want to offend anybody, but it, it seems like it's easier to impose sanctions on an economy when you have very little exposure to them from a, a trade or economic perspective. I feel like these types of conversations become very different. I, actually, to your point, Scott, that it would be much more of an issue for the U.S. economy and other economies that are exposed to semiconductors in in Southeast Asia, if similar types of sanctions were imposed on China, should that sort of escalate to those kinds of levels? I guess the other way to put this is the more international economies are sort of reliant and intertwined with each other, everyone has an interest in sort of keeping the peace so that they don't have to, you know, go down these roads. Yeah, those are very good points, Sam. Very good points. And... I think that probably covers the international section. The next section for us is financials that we're always covering. I think crypto is something that's really had been very interesting and hot web three throughout the fourth quarter. Feels like crypto has died down a little bit with Bitcoin falling, but curious to hear any other trends that you guys are keeping an eye on in financial space. I don't think there was much to write about in the financials. Uh, banks are just doing the same thing they've been doing for a while, releasing results. And uh, definitely uh, there's a cool down in terms of crypto. Uh, I think that has affected companies like Robinhood, which rely a lot on that trading volumes. So I think that's been a major trend at this Q4 and full year 2021. Sam, yourself? Yeah, from a lot of what I feel like we used to hear about when it came to stuff like crypto was overwhelmingly about trading. And I guess from a more traditional financial services perspective, the, the degree to which 
banks were bending over backwards so that they can meet client demand. But it seems like the hottest that ever was may perhaps be behind us from a trading uh, perspective, though it seems like interest, generally speaking, persists. The other thing, and I think this goes back to, to macro stuff that we were talking about earlier, is this whole matter of interest rate hikes from the Fed and I guess sort of just the interest rate conversation more broadly. And I think well, at least a couple of banks were talking about these on their earnings calls about how they're actually pretty bullish on this, especially if all this means uh, a, a yield curve that potentially steepens, even though the exact opposite of that has been happening. But I, I think something that really gets banks perked up is the prospect of, of higher interest rates. And then the other thing too being, you know, especially with short-term rates, something that I guess anybody with cash on their balance sheets will benefit from is higher short-term interest rates because so much of that uh, cash and cash equivalents or specifically cash equivalents um, are exposed to short-term interest rates. So we could actually see cash levels for companies actually increase as the short-term interest rates go up. Quick on that, maybe I could ask a question. How do banks do when interest rates rise? That's a common question I've seen that most of the banks getting asked in Q4. And then also how do banks position themselves in times of rising rates? I know a lot of us have not been in periods where banks or at least financial institutions experience rising rates. Since they hold deposits and they have to pay up on them and then also they have mortgages and they have the issues around refinancing and all. What's your take on that? Maybe Scott? Yeah, I think Sam hit the trends really well in his comments that I think there's some perception that banks would benefit from rising rates. At the end of the day, Eric, to your comments, it comes back to the net interest margin, right? You have to be lending at a higher rate than you're paying your deposits. And I think psychologically, depositors have become so used to earning no interest on their deposits that banks have become really asset sensitive. So if interest rates go up on uh, the short term, asset side of the portfolio, you could see um, better earnings growth from these banks. And that definitely would be a catalyst. Banks have perpetually traded at pretty low multiples relative to the market since the financial crisis. And it's been like 14 years since the financial crisis now. So I think we can all get that behind psychologically. And maybe inflation is, again, we're kind of exiting this psychological period of deflation and going into potentially more of a psychological period of inflation, banks could revert to more of a normalized inflation environment from an earnings perspective and also an investor multiple perspective. So that is something that could happen. I would say that's probably a contrarian thing to watch out for. And maybe on that note, also it's good to ask because the public markets have been uh, on a downtrend the past month and a common question in earnings schools for financial institutions about whether that impact in public markets is flowing into private markets, especially in terms of valuations. And their common answer is, of course, like very little has changed. I think companies like Blackstone, they don't see, they're still raising record amounts of money and still processing some of that money into some of the uh, small startup companies that are out there, or at least in the spaces that they invested in. So I'm curious to know, a lot of companies also came out in Q4, or at least full year results, like Facebook and they reported some earnings and they, and if you disappointed that just a little, you got punished a lot by the markets. And if you, I don't know, if you even beat the, the targets or the SMS are out there, you still got beat up in the market. So I don't know what's been happening in the markets lately, but 
Are there observations that you've seen maybe as regards the public-private impact in terms of valuations and all? Maybe you can start with some. Yeah, sure. I, I think it's interesting how investors and traders have reacted to beats and the misses. To your point, yeah, it is, has been the case. And I think there's some charts and data about all this too, that better than expected earnings were either not rewarded too much in terms of share price, or if the guidance wasn't particularly strong, then investors were dumping the stock. And then of course, if you were disappointing on the bottom line, not only would the stock sell off, but we see trillion dollar companies lose eight, 10, 12% of their market cap in a day. I think that's probably a combination of things. One, valuations being very high and, and not to mention the fact that, that stocks had been climbing for so long, especially coming out of the early uh, phases of, of the coronavirus pandemic and that initial crash. It also has to do something with this expectation for higher interest rates and how higher interest rates suddenly make other types of securities more attractive. And it means the cost of capital is going up and it would make sense that valuations would contract. And then sort of tying all that stuff together is maybe, I, I hate to speak like this because it's all purely speculation, but maybe there were investors and traders who are looking for a reason to liquidate some positions and book profits or, or whatever. Again, speculation, I, I hate even speaking to, to stuff like that, but it would make sense. It would make sense that stretched valuations, rising interest rates, and massive unrealized gains, maybe that's a reason why people are selling a little bit more aggressively than they used to. But on the other side of that, though, related to valuations, and, and specifically with public markets, I think what's interesting still is the expectations for forward earnings like 2022 and 2023 earnings, even after all these under earnings announcements and, and guidances have been issued, er, forward earnings have been, you know, pretty stable as far as expectations are concerned. So a lot of the selling seems to be somewhat detached from expectations for earnings. Yes, earnings growth is decelerating, but none of the expectations for absolute earnings have changed. If anything, in recent months, it's just only changed for the, the better. Like they have actually been upgraded. You put all that stuff together and, and valuations, you know, are slowly becoming a lot more attractive than, than they used to be. And it, it could soon be the case. It might be next week or whatever, but we're going to start seeing a lot more strategists talk about, well, valuations are attractive now. We can no longer talk about bubble level valuations because of how much prices have come down despite earnings holding up. Yeah, I think you make a great point, Sam. And it's the earnings growth has been so massive over the last couple or three years that valuations that looked extremely high years ago have kind of been like eaten away by the earnings growth. And so as stock prices have fallen, the multiples don't look quite as high as they did. And I think like a counter to that though is Part of the ma major boost to earnings for these companies has been inflation. And when you have that large CPI itself, 7.5% of your earnings growth, even that by CPI. And I think there's a lot of indicators to say that inflation has been even higher in other segments. But when you have inflationary, you would expect to have rising interest rates offsetting that. And so multiples could go much lower an average multiple for the s&p 500 i think it's really more than 14 
uh, level if you go back through the 20th century. So yes, earnings could be growing a lot and multiples could actually be falling more than what we've been used to in this extremely low interest rate environment. So that's something to keep an eye on too. One other point on earnings season is I think two of the big earnings miss companies that stand out to me are Netflix, Peloton, actually a third being Facebook. And some of the dynamic there is the readjustment from the pandemic where you had really strong growth again from like a Netflix and then they're readjusting to a world in which people aren't sitting at home watching TV quite as much. And so you're having now a growth headwind in 2022. And that's interesting. And for a long-term investor, that probably actually creates some sort of buying opportunity because the stock may trade sideways. You might have some multiple compression and then earnings growth returns in like a 2023. So those are other dynamics. I think Facebook is probably the most extreme example of that, potentially. Eric, you have any thoughts on any of this? I was surprised by the amount of punishment some of these stocks had to endure. Like say, like Facebook losing around 200 billion in market cap in a single day. I think that was substantial. Looking at some of these companies, though, it's not that something has fundamentally changed about the company in the past, like quarter. If anything, some of them have record quarters. Let's say a company like is it Salesforce or yeah, so and Shopify. So it's not like something has substantially changed in the fundamentals of the company, but maybe investor psychology has changed. And I think I just posted one of the charts that shows the that most of the companies that missed this quarter got hit a lot more. If you miss by a little, you got hit a lot more than usual. But again, this also presents a nice buying opportunities for those who missed. Uh, some of the stocks are actually trading as same valuations they were at just before the pandemic. So it tells you the opportunities to also uh, maybe go into the market with a nice bucket and just collect some of these stocks that you may have missed out on because of the pandemic. Scott, do you have something? Maybe you can also, at the same time, segue us into consumer and tech sector. Yeah, I think you may have been segueing to the same place that I was going to, which you and I have talked about on our podcast a couple of weeks, that Facebook's earnings miss is reflective of potentially a very large change in the advertising landscape of the way that advertisers are reaching consumers. And we've picked up quotes not only on the Facebook call, but in calls like Trade Desk, Roku recently subscription fatigue being one element of this of like people having uh, subscribing to um, a lot of different services and not wanting to pick up an additional service and so gravitating towards more of an ad supported model like a hulu we flagged as something like that so there's that and then there's also the bigger one for facebook some of the other social media companies is the move towards privacy and the move towards not being able to really see who is interacting with ads in the same way as you would have been able to a year or two ago. And so that benefits companies like Google on the search side and is a headwind to Facebook and could be a really large shift in the way advertising budgets are allocated. And so again, anytime you have a big shift in the way money is being allocated, that creates an investment opportunity for companies with their buckets in the right place. The trade desk is one, I don't own it, but I'm following closely. It's got a hefty, hefty multiple on it. But if there's a sell-off, I could see myself buying that. Sam, are you picking up any of that? Yeah, I think you pretty much said all of it. I come from media companies that relied so heavily on on operating as free sites with all paid for by you know ads, hopefully that people were clicking through or at least just sort of seeing through impressions or whatever. But I'm not going to pretend like it wasn't surprising to see how much market cap Facebook loses in, in a day 
But when you begin to think about how quickly there could be shifts in terms of industry trends, like specifically for something like advertising, it's definitely unsettling to watch because so much wealth vanishes and that doesn't even get into all the different companies that, that are impacted by various policy changes, whether it's Apple and, and, and their policy changes as well. But yeah, de definitely very jarring. And I guess it was just sort of a lesson for all investors that things can change just very quickly. Yeah. On that issue of subscription fatigue, it's one of the first times I've seen it mentioned by companies. The example we gave with Scott is about you want to watch a show, say on, on Netflix and, and HBO. Let's say you're a regular user of Netflix and then you want to maybe watch a show on HBO. So the challenge is that you kind of have to pay the whole month subscription to enjoy just one maybe movie or series from another streaming platform. And that creates a lot of challenges in the sense that you don't want to keep paying that every month. So there is a lot of consumers who prefer maybe all this if it was assembled to one platform where they can actually pay for it. But now that they have so many, are they okay in consuming ads in some of them to be able to enjoy the content that is there? So I think that's what you see. So remarkably, this is a quarter you saw like YouTube revenues. When you compare the YouTube ad revenues alone with the total revenues of Netflix, they actually surpassed that. And I think that's very significant. It shows you there's a little bit of a battle between the types of business models some of these companies are adopting. Is the optimal business model going to be pure ad-based or pure subscription-based like Netflix or somewhere in between? And I think that's a good trend to keep track of now going into this new year, I would say. Any thoughts on that uh, or any other thoughts that you may have noticed in tech or consumer? Yeah, just one more other thing and related to sort of consumer behavior too. And this came up on the Facebook or, or the meta platforms call. There is this gigantic elephant in the room called TikTok. And it's definitely not something that's easily comparable to binge watching eight hours of a, a really great series. And a, a person's time is finite, right? And with all these people spending so much more time on places like TikTok, that's time not being spent scrolling through Instagram or scrolling through Facebook or, or looking at some of these other social media platforms. And, and yeah, maybe that's even taking away potential eyeball time, screen time from places like Netflix or whatever. I'm sure it's not as material for some of these bigger streaming services, but it, it is something worth noting. And maybe this also speaks to YouTube as well, where there are a lot of folks who sort of operate outside of these big streaming companies that are, that are sort of independent content creators. I think that's certainly an interesting sort of space to watch. I mean, everything from ring lights to the new iPhone video cameras and stuff is, is turning average Joes into extraordinary producers of very compelling content. And they're all doing it independent of some of these big production houses. I don't have the numbers or whatever to actually talk about like how much impact that really has. But anecdotally, as someone who does spend some time scrolling through TikTok, can say that the entertainment space is very competitive. It's amazing how much good content is being produced uh, or churned out on TikTok itself. And uh, there's a quote I've pinned there uh, from Facebook, of course, citing I think one of the key issues that they are having is actually TikTok. They really don't know how to compete with it. Instagram was the way they wanted to compete with it through their reels. But so far, 
them made a dent in uh, TikTok's dominance in this space. So it was a big worry. And my contention was that if Zuckerberg, his hands were not tied in terms of, let's say, the, the issues to do with antitrust, he would easily have bought up uh, TikTok because he sees them as a formidable opponent. And at the same time, it would have been a formidable ally if they had that kind of an arrow within the quiver. Uh, Maybe just one wrap-up comment and move on to industrials. But I think one thing we talked about in a podcast was how the social networks are heavily generationally based and that in the same way you wouldn't want to frequent the same restaurants or bars that your parents go to a lot of kids don't necessarily want to go to the same social media channels that their parents are on so that creates the opportunity refresh and renewal with each cycle of generation where maybe gen z likes tiktok and snap more than instagram and then the generation after that will will like something else so i think we talked about how this ties into what Zuckerberg sees with the metaverse. I think he's just trying to get ahead of the next curve and really own the next curve of this p- potential virtual reality world that many of us will be living in at some point in the not too distant future. It's just something to look at and watch. And it's interesting because I think especially in tech investing, there's a per- uh, propensity to believe that like wherever we are will exist forever. And the reality is the technology cycle is actually last very short period of time where if you own the VCR market and you own the DVD market, you got to own the internet next. So these windows are actually really, really short compared to what gets priced into securities markets. So something to think about. Perhaps something I would add was uh, something we picked up was in earnings calls. I think Disney was 100 years old and also the iPhone's 15 years old now. So it tells you a lot about how tech has changed. Any perspectives on those companies? And maybe as also we say, going to the industrial section where I think most of the issues are about supply chains, which were easing a little bit in some spaces, uh, but are still heavily constrained, especially in areas like semiconductor, where everyone is watching. Car, car companies still focusing more on the premium side of things and where they can earn a little bit more money, where they have semiconductors to be able like, to produce some of these things. From the industrial section, that's my main takeaway, mostly that uh, supply chains are constrained for the first half of this year. My worry, of course, is uh, once supply chains ease, some of these companies may be left with very high-cost products. And I think that was one of the challenges that Peloton faced. They sourced their goods at higher costs of production, and that means that even if they sell them, they are actually cutting into their margins unless they raise prices. And consumers are sensitive in some of these companies in terms of if they raise prices at the end of the day. Did you see anything? Yeah, I, I think something that people really aren't talking about enough is, is this whole matter of when the pendulum swings too far in the opposite direction where companies are sitting on a little bit too much inventory, right? This is sort of like the irony of a company like Peloton. And maybe that's something that more companies or maybe investors just generally should be thinking about a little bit harder is if, if we all remember from late 2020, one of the hottest stories in business was Peloton not having enough bicycles. They just could not, there was just so much demand. And then what people were complaining about when it came to Peloton was it's going to take four months or six months for a bike to get you know delivered. And so that was just sort of like the purest form. Of, and, and this was even before a lot of supply chains really sort of rippled across the economy. They just didn't have enough stationary bikes but sure it's definitely its own specific example but yeah we do have to wonder 
on what happens because there will be some overcorrection at some point and then maybe that turns disinflationary and perhaps even deflationary but i think something to watch with regard to that is there is a metric i think it's either published by the the bureau of economic analysis or the census bureau one of, one of the government agencies but every month they publish a stat on business inventories and they also provide you with a, a ratio for business inventories as a percentage of sales. And that continues to say that inventory levels are just very depressed. So it looks like there is still a little bit of time before that actually becomes kind of a problem. I think there will be some warning, but yeah, I, I agree. It's going to be interesting to see exactly how the inventory and, and then the supply chain story more broadly, how all that stuff unfolds. Yeah, just one thing to add to the industrial section, and I'll note I have a hard stop at uh, too Pacific, but one thing to add to the industrial section is that's where we had been chronicling the travel dynamics of the COVID period and the, the end of COVID. And I think travel still has not fully recovered and is slowly on the path to recovering though. But with everything else that's going on in the world, it's kind of become a quiet story within capital markets, which is again, an opportunity for investment. There's still cruise ship stocks are way down. Commercial business travel is still way below where it used to be. And that may be something that doesn't fully recover, but there's still opportunities just to invest in normalization post-COVID within the market at those edges. So something to point out. Scott, maybe you can give us your expectations going into the new year, and then you can also give us a little bit of perspective. One key thought from the Q4 and 2020, FY2021 earnings. One overall theme that you really liked. Yeah, let me start with theme from 2021. The biggest theme was the earnings growth, just the massive earnings growth, fueled in part by inflation. But it doesn't really matter when you look at the numbers and their double digit numbers and large double digits in the 20s and 30s percent range. That's really meaningful, significant growth, even if it's, it's only nominal. So that was the biggest theme and most important thing of 2021. And I think the flip side for 2022, I think it was not impossible to see going into this year that it was going to be hard to recapture the same level of earnings growth that we saw last year. And uh, inflation had been bad all year. And so you've got decelerating earnings growth and more inflation, higher interest rates, that all to equate to a more difficult year for the stock market. And so we've seen sell-off at the beginning of 2022. That's totally consistent with the way that a bear market would operate. Bear market doesn't necessarily have to be calamity, but if we were down 20% at some point this year, I don't think any, any of us would be surprised. And so that's still my outlook for the year and when I, the way that I'm navigating markets is for continued volatility, even though we're probably overdue for a pretty big rally here, if only a bear market rally. All right. So let's hear some and then we can close up the look. Yeah, sure. Scott, I think is, is nailing it right there. This whole matter of earnings growth decelerating is something I think investors are still sort of coming to terms with. So many of these growth companies that have seen their stocks crash still have tremendous earnings growth prospects in front of them. It's just that it's a little bit slower than what they were expecting in the previous year. And this is something that is sort of being said across the board. And then, yeah, to Scott's point, inflationary pressures on higher interest rates are all sort of headwinds when it comes to the stock market and valuations and all of this stuff. But with all that said, though, earnings expectations are holding up. 
And one thing I wanted to follow up on with Disney, and I think this is extremely telling, and this relates to travel too. But one thing that Disney was saying about amusement park visits is the international tourist has just been completely absent. And a lot of this is going to deal with local COVID restrictions and how people are sort of thinking about international travel and all of this stuff. But th this whole matter of international travel has yet to come back. And I think it's stuff like that sort of like hiding in the shadows of demand opportunities that might need to get a little bit more attention because all this stuff, of course, translates to more sales and more people willing to pay a higher price for uh, a plane ticket and, and all of this stuff. And, and I think that is the sort of tailwind for companies that will offset some of these pressures when it comes to higher inflation and, and higher interest rates. Yes, that's a perfect place to close for the quarter. We'll do this again uh, next quarter, uh, next quarterly Q1 review in three months again. So thank you, Sam. Thank you, Scott, for joining us and uh, goodbye for now. Sam, I think you should plug in your your Substack newsletter. Oh, yeah. If you're not subscribed, uh, make sure to sign up for Ticker. That's T-K-E-R dot C-O. There are links to it in my Twitter profile. So just go ahead and click through there and sign up. Check out if you like it. And then maybe you'll even become a paid subscriber. Great. I'll say that you can also find us at the transcript.substack.com. We aggregate uh, weekly thoughts from earnings calls and we really do partner a lot with on this. So thank you for joining us this week. See you again soon.